Turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're not going to waste any time tonight. We'll jump right in in our study through this Old Testament narrative. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 15 if the Lord continues to lead this way for four straight Sunday nights. Now listen closely. I, I, I don't think you should miss a single one. If you're here and you're able, every message is going to build on the next, and so, on the previous one. And so I hope that, that, that you will make it a point uh, to, to be here. Um, this first one is really just going to launch us into this thought. And, and I'm going to warn you um, that, that we're, we're going we're gonna to preach pretty straightforwardly in the next four weeks because we're, we're dealing with some very serious stuff in this passage. And uh, I, I hope to speak boldly, graciously, all at the same time. Uh, if God helps me, but, but this is where we live. I mean, this is going to get down to, to, to the brass tacks of holy living or unholy living. And, and so I hope that you'll make it a point to be here. There's a command that's been used throughout the years in warfare, and it's called this, take no prisoners. That phrase is referring to when a military has been commanded to be utterly ruthless They've been commanded to be uncompromising or, or unyielding in the pursuit of their enemy. No mercy. So when a general sends down a command and he tells his soldiers, take no prisoners, he literally means to leave nobody alive on the battlefield. He, he wants the enemy utterly destroyed rather than seizing the enemy as prisoners. And here's why. Because the general doesn't want his soldiers weighed down or, or slowed down or distracted by having to monitor enemy prisoners. He knows the objective is too serious to waste time on dead weight. So he calls for a total annihilation. You know, there are times in our life when God, as our general will command us as his people to take no prisoners. Specifically in this area that we call sin. Did you know that God is incredibly serious about our sin? This passage is going to prove it, and it's going to prove that he expects us to be just as serious about our sin as he is. He wants us to be utterly ruthless and uncompromising and unyielding in our pursuit of destroying sin. He would tell us what a general would tell his soldier. He would tell us, don't be weighed down and don't be slowed down and don't be distracted by, by simply seizing your enemy. He would command us to utterly destroy our enemy and to be ruthless in doing it. When it comes to sin, here's what God tells each and every one of us tonight. Take no prisoners. And that's what he told King Saul. Look at verse number one of chapter 15. Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Here's, here's the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. My question immediately is this. What about the Amalekites makes God so angry? What about this people group caused God to say, 
Leave none of them alive. Take no prisoners. Well, Samuel tells us that it goes all the way back to when the Amalekites, uh, what they did to God's people when they were first coming out of Egypt. You can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Is that on, did, did I include that? Yeah. Look at this. Um, remember, he says, what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt. Verse 18, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee even all that were feeble behind thee when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. So here's what happened. The nation of Israel were in bondage. God chose them while they were in bondage. He used Moses to, to set them free from bondage. And then on the run from Pharaoh and his armies, they got to the Red Sea and God parted the Red Sea and then washed up Pharaoh and his armies uh, whenever the, the children of Israel crossed. The verse says that when the Amalekites saw that, they didn't fear God. They didn't even fear God when he publicly declared that the Israelites were his people. Rather, here's what the Amalekites did. They waged war with the Israelites, but not in like a normal way. They didn't wage war man to man or army to army or, 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 or face to face. Instead, the verse says they picked them off from behind. They smote the hindmost. It was pathetic. They killed the feeble. They killed the faint. They killed the weary. They killed the sickly. They picked off the children and the women and those who couldn't defend himself. And so you get the idea why God tells Saul in verse 2, Hey, I remember what they did to my people. And it's time for judgment. By the way, God will always have the last word. And verse 3 says, God gave them a clear command. You utterly destroy all that they have. Now, when God tells them to utterly destroy them, this is different than, than, than the other times when the Israelites would go to war because often they were instructed to destroy certain things but to keep the best of the spoil for themselves. That was a typical military practice. But not here. God said utterly destroyed them. You look up the word utterly and it is defined by words like this. Exterminate, mutilate, eliminate. The theological definition is to place under a ban. Anytime God would order his people to ban another nation, it meant utterly destroy them because God was offended by their sins in such a great way that, that he didn't want any of them remaining. Now, that seems very harsh. I don't have time to go over why God is just in that. But after I get done preaching through 1 Samuel 15, I think I'm going to clear off a spot one Sunday night and, and, and I'm going to answer the question, why did God do something like that? If God is a God of love, why do we read in the Old Testament how we just wiped out entire people groups? Well, we're going to talk about that. But here's the point of the text. Did you know that there are still some Amalekites that God wants utterly destroyed today? I'm not talking about a people group. The Amalekites represent something totally different for God's people in the New Testament age because we too, just like the Israelites, we have an enemy. We're in a battle. It's called a spiritual warfare. Our enemy is Satan. Our enemy is sin. Amalekites represent the sin in our life. And like the Amalekites did for Israel, sin seeks to destroy our lives. Sin is the greatest enemy of God. It seeks to keep us from experiencing total victory and freedom. The very definition of sin is given to us in 1 John 3 and verse 4. It says, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is what? The transgression of the law. Sin is when we transgress the word of God. God is still holy. Did you hear me? And there are still some things that offend him. 
And he still takes sin very seriously today. So serious that just like he commanded Saul to utterly destroy his enemy, he commands us to utterly destroy our sin. No, in the New Testament, he tells us that. He uses a deathly word called mortify. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Mortify, put to death. Therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Those are all sensual sins. The next verse, he moves to social sins. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. The Bible says, and I don't know if it's true, I haven't studied it, but, but, but one scholar says the Bible mentions around 667 sins by name that we should stay away from. God is serious about sin. Now, I know sin isn't talked about very much anymore. It's not preached about very much anymore. But God is still very much offended by my sin and your sin. But here's what we do often. We treat our sin like King Saul treated his. Look at verse number four. And Saul gathered the people together, numbered them, and to lay them 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. Verse number five. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, go, depart. Get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye show kindness to all the children of Israel when they come out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest ashore. That is over against Egypt. So up to this point, church, everything's going great. Saul has amassed this uh, huge army to, to attack the Amalekites. He's even spared the Kenites as a way to pay them back for being so kind to them back in the Exodus. They're slaying the Amalekites in verse 7. God's working. Everything's going as planned until we get to verse number 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And utterly destroyed all the people at the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best of the sheep and the oxen, and the fatlings and the lambs. And all that was good would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. You see where he went wrong? He kept what he wanted for himself. He kept King Agag. He kept the best of the livestock. I'll tell you why here in just a little bit. But I want to tell you this right off the bat. He isn't the only one that does this. God commands us to mortify the sin that is in our lives. But we as God's people, we try to live for God. We do what's right. But we all tend to hang on to some agags in our life, don't we? We all tend to keep like the best of the livestock around. It's not that, that we, we are, are trying to reject God and his word altogether. You all are here on a Sunday night. You're interested in godly things. You want your family to be interested in godly things. It's just that certain sins we tend to hang on to. There are some prisoners we like to keep around and that we can't bring ourselves to utterly destroy. Now I could start going off right now about all these kind of sins the list is just too large of the potential sins represented, the potential agags represented in the congregation and behind this pulpit tonight. So I'll just put them in two categories. As I do this, I hope that I'm giving the Holy Spirit space in which to work and speak to your heart and reveal to you what your agag might be tonight. There are two categories. There are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. Sins of commission are, are things that, that, that is doing what we shouldn't do. Sins of omission is not doing what we should. Sins of commission would include things like this. Sins of the tongue. Gossip. Critical words. Complaining. Cursing. Lying. 
Sins of commission would include impure habits that turn into addictions. Things like, like that the Apostle Paul said uh, we should not master us, should not have power over us. Prisoners in our life like illegal drugs, pain medication, alcohol, nicotine, gluttony. By the way, that's overeating and we struggle with that. And that's a sin. There's emotional sins like anger and self-pity and insecurity and jealousy and envy and greed. And one we often overlook, moodiness. You're one, one day this way, and, or one way this, this day, and a whole other way the, the next day. Very unpredictable. There's relational sins, bitterness and unforgiveness. There's holding a grudge. There's malice. There's sexual sins. We're talking about things you shouldn't do, like lust and fornication and pornography and adultery. But then there's sins of omission. Things you should do, but you don't do. That includes laziness. And slothfulness is just the heart of all the sins of omission. Physically lazy, financially lazy, spiritually lazy, a failure to read our Bibles, a failure to pray, a, pray, a failure to fast, a failure to witness, tell others about Christ, a failure to lead in your home, men, a failure to submit in your home, a failure to tithe, a failure to get involved and serve in church, a failure to commit by joining a church. Let me ask you, what are the agags in your life that you're hanging on to when God has clearly commanded you to utterly destroy them? What are they? I can't tell you what they are for you. I know what they are for the one standing behind the pulpit, though. I'm talking about besetting sins. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Lay aside the sin that does so easily beset you. Talking about the sin that you keep returning to. I don't know what it is for you. It could be a sin of commission or omission. It could be a sexual sin or an emotional sin or a sin with your words or a sin with your attitude or whatever the case might be. But what is the sin that whenever you're confronted by it, you typically just brush it off? What is the sin that, that you have stopped fighting a long time ago because you don't even think you could get victory over it? What is the sin that your spouse complains to you about the most? And frankly, because you never changed, they already gave up. But you know what it is. Young people, what's the sin that God most often convicts you about in youth group? What's the sin that leads you to, to do the crazy cycle of, saying, of sinning, then you come to the altar and you ask for forgiveness and then you do good for a while, but then you sin again, you come back to the altar and it's just this crazy cycle and you truly never live in the land of victory over that specific sin. Now I've named a few, but if you still haven't identified what your agag might be, maybe having an understanding of why Saul kept his around will give you more clarity. Hope you know tonight that the one preaching to you struggles with Agags too, by the way. We're all in the same boat. Saul struggled with, with getting rid of Agag for two possible reasons. Here's the first, because of pressure. Notice verse 9. It says, but Saul and the people. So it sounds like the people had some influence on Saul. We're exerting some pressure on Saul. That's confirmed all the way down in verse 24. Look at your Bible in verse 24. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words. Watch here. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Can you imagine what's happening? I can. 
Some of Saul's chiefest men and chiefest advisors are saying, come on, buddy. Keep the king, man. Don't you know he'll be a trophy for us? He'll give us political leverage and political power. And what about the best of the sheep and the oxen? Man, we can, we can slaughter all the marginal cattle, but man, we can't throw away the prime USDA grade A beef. We got to keep that around. And so Saul kept some prisoners because of pressure. But I think verse 9 teaches us that he kept them because of pleasure, too. It says the best of the sheep. He didn't keep a servant to the king. He kept the king because the king would bring them honor. The king would fuel their pride. King would bring them egotistical pleasure. Keeping the best of the livestock would bring their bellies pleasure, would bring their bank accounts pleasure. It would be profit for them. So ask yourself this tonight. Is there anything in my life either because of pleasure or pressure that I'm hanging on to? Sins of the tongue have a weird way of bringing pleasure. So some genuinely find pleasure in running other people down. It makes them feel better about themselves. Some find pleasure in the attention they get when they criticize and belittle somebody else. They like the attention that filthy communication brings and the laughs they get. It brings pleasure. Bad habits, addictions bring pleasure or else we wouldn't be addicted to them. It's obviously temporal pleasure. That drug, that drink, that nicotine, that food, that sex, it brings just enough release from reality that it makes it seem like the risk of those things is worth it in the moment. Bitterness and unforgiveness bring kind of a sick, twisted pleasure. Why do so many Christians hang on to grudges? It's because in a weird kind of way, there's pleasure in holding a grudge. There's like this sick pleasure in making someone else feel a little bit of the way they made us feel. Covetousness. This speaks of greed and lust, a desire to always have more. Is there not a pleasure in having new stuff? There's a pleasure when we feel like we're keeping up with those around us. There's this pleasure we crave when the things we have earn us extra attention and extra privilege. And it may not just be the pleasure that keeps us from utterly destroying our agag, but, but it may bring the pressure pressure of those around us. It seems like every time as a Christian, you might try to get rid of some sin in your life. It's like Satan sends somebody your way to advise you in the opposite direction. They might say, hey, I don't see the big deal. You're overreacting. Oh, you must have went to church again. Oh, you deserve it. Have one weekend for yourself. Hey, stop being so churchy all of a sudden. Why don't you like us anymore? You think you're better than us now? Hey, what, what happens at work stays at work. You can trust us. Don't you know if you make a decision to, to change that, like all of a sudden you're going to lose your friends? And here's what's interesting about the pressure that, that, Paul, that Saul was facing. It was from his own people. It wasn't the enemy. It was people he was close to, people he's fighting with, people he thought had his back, had the same goals. And I found that the devil often does not use bad, wicked people necessarily to pressure us as children of God. He uses the people we're close to. The people in our own family. The people in our own church. The people at work that we trust. The people we sit by in youth group. And what the devil will, will get them to do is lighten the severity of your sin. Make it seem like it's not as a big of a deal as you're making it out to be. The very people that should be challenging our sin and helping us defeat our sin are often the ones who are guilty of condoning our sin and even some, sometimes subtly pressuring us to stay in our sin. 
And sometimes it's not the pressure of people, is it? Sometimes it's just merely the pressure of our circumstances. It's the pressure of our life situations. What happens is that the pressures of our life, whether they be financial or work or relationship pressures or whatever the case might be, they always cause us to run back to our agag because our agag is our release valve during stressful times. That's why when people get into tough, tough situations of life, they often stop coming to church for a while. It's never made sense to me. After studying this passage, it does. Because where are they? They're likely medicating themselves with their agag. Whether that be something obviously sinful or something subtly sinful. Here's the point. God has commanded you and I to utterly destroy all of our sin. Yet so often we hang on to it. We keep a couple little sins prisoner. We locked those sins up. We're not willing to part way with those sins. And by doing that, we fail to fully obey God. You say, I get that. I'm guilty. We're all sinners. We all have vices. You're acting like we're supposed to be perfect or something. What's the big deal? If we're trying, then God understands. Please listen. Sin is a big deal. And here's why. Because every sin has consequences. You can choose whatever you want to choose, but you don't get the freedom to choose the consequences of what you choose. And look at Saul's consequence in verse 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me, hath not performed my commandments. Skip down to verse number 23. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. We'll talk about that more next week. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Here, here's one of the consequences Saul, Saul faced as a result of his sin. He lost the opportunity for influence. What God did in rejecting King Saul would be exactly what, what, what our country has tried to do in impeaching the president. Like it's a major deal. God's not messing around anymore. There's no more conditional prophecies. In fact, in the next chapter, he's going to anoint Saul's replacement. Now, I understand you're not a king. I'm not a king. You're not going to lose your throne. But hear me, if you're a child of God, God has given you influence. He said when you accepted him and you became his child and his disciple, you became the salt of the earth. You became the light of the world. Do you understand that when you sin, your testimony is ruined? Your testimony has potential to be totally destroyed. Do you understand that your habitual, uh, willful sin destroys your influence for Christ? I've never met a Christian that is living in willful sin, yet effectively reaching others with the gospel at the same time. No, you forfeit your spiritual influence when you hang on to Agag. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you've lost your saltiness, what does that mean? Your spiritual influence, your uniqueness because you're set apart. If you lose your saltiness, your flavor, he said it is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. In other words, sin, it hinders your ability to be the salt of the earth. And God basically says this, your influence is not effective at that point. You might as well pour it on the ground and walk over it. It's not going to fulfill its purpose. 
That's not the only consequence. There's one more soft face. Look at the last part of verse 11. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried unto the Lord all the night. Samuel had invested in Saul's life. We've already studied Samuel was the one that anointed King Saul. Samuel was the one that hunted down King Saul. Samuel was the one that prayed over King Saul. Samuel was the one that mentored King Saul. Samuel was the one that put his hope in King Saul. No wonder he was grieved. He loved this man. He knew it wasn't God's choice, but God was trying to redeem one of Israel's regrets and demanding a king. And so he, 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 he was just trying to make the best of a bad situation, be God's man and say, you know what? I'm going to invest in King Saul. I'm going to mentor King Saul. I'm going to love on King Saul. I'm going to lead King Saul because he is God's man for this hour. And that's why he's grieving. That's why he's crying. Not just a couple tears. He's crying all night long. Young people, listen real close to me, please, and look at me. When you sin, please, young people, you grieve the people that love you the most. Who are they? Your mother and your father. No, Proverbs 17, 25 says a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. They don't stop loving you. It's because they love you so much. That when you sin and your attitude is progressively getting worse and worse and worse and you're more worldly and more worldly and more carnal and more carnal by the day and they can't get you to appreciate God. They can't get you to love his word. They can't get you to fall in love with Jesus. No matter their example, no matter how many times they bring you to church, no matter that your, your church has a great youth pastor and a great youth staff and a great youth ministry and they don't know what to do. They're not just disappointed. They're not just frustrated. They're grieving. That's a deep word. Back in the Bible days, there were professional grievers. Literally, ladies, they would pay that when people lost a loved one, the people who lost a loved one would stay inside and the ladies they would pay would be outside the house grieving for them to show the village that this household is hurting right now. I've seen this for real in my own home. I want to thank God that, that my brother came back to Christ after a long season of running from Christ. He went home to be with his Savior. He was right with his Savior. He was leading his family to be right with God. He, he started a children's church ministry in his in a little church in Burden, Kansas. Man, he loved the Lord, loved his wife, loved his girls. But there was a season of his life, young people, where he lived his own way. And I, I can't even give you all the details that wouldn't be appropriate. But there were nights when I heard my mom just wailing, crying. Over the way my, my, my brother would talk to my dad, yell at my dad, yell at my mom. Be times whenever we got a call, say, say, say Mr. Prater, we, we got your son here at the police station. Be a day whenever my, son, my, my brother uh, had, had to stay over in Garden City at the, at the, I don't know if it's juvenile detention center or jail up there, whatever. He had to stay up there for aggravated assault. And my mom and dad walked in the courtroom the next day and he was wearing like a jumpsuit and, and his feet were, were shackled. They give testimony of, of just losing it in that moment. There were times when my brother would sneak out 
And my dad would have to go chase him down in the town and my, my brother would get home and, and he would scream and yell and lay hands on my dad. And it was very, 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 very ugly. And I've seen it firsthand, young people, how when you sin and you rebel, it breaks your mom's heart. It breaks your dad's heart. Are you listening to me? Don't be selfish. Stop being selfish. I know your mom's not perfect. I know your dad's not perfect. But quit pointing the finger at them constantly. Quit disrespecting them. Quit lying to them. Quit deceiving them. Quit taking them for granted. Quit blowing them off. One little sin of disrespect leads to bigger sins. I'm asking you to consider who you're grieving before you sin. And listen to me, adults, it's not, it's not any different for us. There's people that love us too. Our kids love us and they grieve when we mess up. We think our sin has, has no effect on our kids. Well, they're kids. No, they, they know more than you think they know. And they see more than you think they see. And they hear more than you think they hear. And so when you're fighting with mom or you're fighting with dad and it's constantly like this, don't think for a moment that your daughter's heart's not grieved. And your son's heart's not grieved. They know that's how marriage, marriage is not supposed to be that way. They know that. Mommy and daddy are supposed to love each other. They're supposed to respect each other. They're supposed to be on the same team. When you don't come to church... Parents, your, your kids are grieved about that, especially when they like church. When you, when you say something like this to them or your life says something like this to them, you just do as I say, not as I do. That troubles them. They feel ripped off at that point. They, they smell out hypocrisy. And it, and it doesn't just burden them, I'm telling you, because they don't know how to process that. It angers them. And I know you're not perfect, and I'm not perfect, and we don't have to be perfect. But the longer you hold on to the agags in your life, mom or dad, or whether that be anger or, or bitterness or, or, or passivity or whatever the case might be, so long as you hang on to that, the longer you hang on to that, the more you trouble your child's spirit. And I don't want to sound like I'm... I, I, I'm, I'm I'm serving myself in this moment, but I'm going to be honest with you. As your pastor, it grieves me. It grieves me because you're on my prayer list. Every single week I pray for you. And then when I see selfish decisions and, and dumb choices and, and repeated behavior that is hurting your marriage or hurting your finances or hurting your family and there's nothing I can do, I'm just being honest. Like, like the man of God, Samuel, felt, I think I've felt that at times. Been times in my prayer closet where I've cried and said, God, do something with that man's heart. God, do something with that lady's heart. God, shake up that teenager. Give him a heart for you. I'm just trying to get you to understand that when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer, and those around you suffer as well. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just trying to preach the text as it is given. And so I want you to ask yourself this question. Is what I'm gaining by hanging on to this sin worth what this sin will eventually cost me? 
Does the gain of short-term pleasure through that sin outweigh the long-term pain of losing a God-given opportunity to influence? Does the gain of pleasing people around me outweigh the pain of grieving those that love me? Saul had a chance to make things right. God gave him a do-over in chapter 15. He could have lived out the rest of his kingship under the blessings of God, but he couldn't get rid of Agag, and it cost him. And the message boils down to this, and I'm done. The prisoner you don't destroy will be the prisoner that destroys you. This little mini-series on sin, this is where it starts. Identifying and confessing your Agag. The question is this, is this what, what sin in your life are you keeping around? What sin in your life are you tolerating? What sin in your life are you hanging on to? What sin in your life, that, what is it that you, you, you tell others, I just can't stop this? The prisoner you don't destroy will be the prisoner that destroys you. So take no prisoners. Would you stand every head bowed and every eye closed?